It says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In the context of Revelation chapter 3, then Christ was standing at the door of the Laodicean church, eager to reenter the congregation through the, through the genuine repentance and salvation of its members. And though this verse has been used in countless numbers of tracts and salvation kind of soul-winning publications, I would tell you that the verse is always taking, is taken out of its context when we use it in that way. Now, there's nothing wrong with sharing with people, and we need to do this on a daily basis, that Jesus Christ loves them, he died for them, he rose again for them, and he wants to have a personal relationship with them, amen? He really does. Listen, if you're here this morning thinking this is all about church, this is about religion, this is about uh, me being a good Sunday morning kind of person, it's really not. This is not about ritual. Sometimes people go to church because they think it, it makes them more acceptable to God, more loved by God. Can I give you a good word this morning? God is never going to love you any more than he already has. He loves you infinitely. And if you are here today and you have never received Christ, you've been going to church maybe all your life, but you have never trusted Christ alone, never said to him, I repent of my sin. Lord, I tell that I'm a sinner. And I trust you alone to be my Savior. I want to have this personal relationship with you. The good news is that Jesus said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus longs to have a personal relationship with every single solitary one of us. I'm so glad today that we have witnessed uh, someone following in believer's baptism, buried with him in Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Listen, every day should be a testimony. Uh, and, and really, that's what baptism is. It is a outward display of an inward reality of what has taken place in our lives. He's alive, and he's well. And we should want to share that with every person we come in contact with. Well, I better stick to my message this morning. I'll get off on trying to get everybody in this room saved. And really, that's what I'd like to do. I'd really like for you, if you don't know Christ today, I want you to know he is knocking at your door today. But when we look at this passage of Scripture, church, Jesus wants his church back. It's his church. And so the, the verse, the verse that I've used this morning, we're going to look at the whole text. The door on which Christ is knocking is not the door necessarily to a single human heart, but to the Laodicean church, to First Baptist Church of Bradenton. Christ was outside of this apostate church in Laodicea, and he wanted to come in in something that could only happen if the people repented. Now the invitation, the invitation is one, because he is knocking on the door of the church, calling people to saving faith so that he may enter the church. And if one person, anyone, opened the door, 
Christ said he would enter that church. The picture of Christ outside the Laodicean church, seeking entrance, strongly implies that unlike Sardis, possibly there were no believers in this church at all. I don't know that for a fact. I don't know that, that any theologian would be able to, to verify that. But what I want you to see this morning is in simplicity what Christ is saying to us. We begin this morning a new series of messages called Christ Wants His Church Back. Jesus wants his church back. And so the offer to dine with this repentant church speaks of fellowship and communion and intimacy. You know, Baptists love fellowship, don't we? Do you know that is the other word for food? I've grown up as a Southern Baptist pastor's kid and then as a Southern Baptist pastor for many years. And I can remember any time my dad would say, we're going to have a fellowship dinner. I went, yes. Hallelujah. That meant there was going to be Aunt Gertie's chicken and dumplings at that fellowship dinner. There was going to be Aunt Bealey, and none of these were my aunts. We just called them that because they cooked well. But Aunt Bealey would have, would have those green beans that had been soaked in so much bacon and grease that, man, oh, I'm getting hungry right now thinking about it. I mean, fellowship. Communion, intimacy, sharing a meal in these ancient times, though, symbolized the union of people in loving fellowship. Believers will dine with Christ, the Bible says, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in the millennial kingdom, dine there is that word dipino, and it, it refers to the evening meal, the last meal of the day. The Lord Jesus urged them to repent and to have fellowship with him before the night of judgment fell, and it was too late forever. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that all people who enter a church tend to carry what is called a wish dream. An illusion about the ideal of church I feel entitled to be a part of. Ideal churches, ladies and gentlemen, don't exist. You know why? Because I'm here and because you're here. I, that went over like a lead balloon. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> All real churches are made up of real people. Real Hurting people, real, sometimes hopeless people, real people that walk in, sometimes wondering how they're going to pay the bills tomorrow, real people that walk in saying, I don't know what I'm going to do about my children. I don't know how we're going to fix this marriage. So allow me to disillusion you a bit this morning and then captivate you and introduce you to the beauty of a Christ-focused, Christ-centered church. Let's understand something about where we live. Jesus is very popular in America. Have you noticed that? He's been popular for a long time, but really, after 2,000 years, he is still a global favorite and sits atop all the U.S. polls like he really cares. People know philosophers and the philosophies of Jesus. They know them more than those of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, they know them more than Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche, 
Most people are familiar with Jesus' words more than they are of Aristotle or Albert Einstein or even Dr. Seuss. Most everyone thinks Jesus is one of the greatest moral teachers of all time, and Christians consider him to be their leader, and Muslims consider him a great prophet. World leaders consider him as a model, and orators consider him as a mentor. Radicals even consider him a member. And in the world in which we live, it's okay to tear down presidents and police officers and pop stars, and it's acceptable to fault your colleagues and your teachers on social media and even your own kids, and it's perfectly appropriate to criticize Taylor Swift's latest song, but Donald Trump's latest executive order, or the NFL's latest bad boy. But with all his popularity, hardly anyone ever finds fault with Jesus. And nobody obeys him. A recent Pew Research poll shows that Christianity in America is in sharp decline. Atheism in this country has doubled. Though those results are troubling to me, there is a deeper truth to that. The people, many of which who have left Christianity, do you realize that in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last 10 years, we've lost 1.3 million members? Those who call themselves Christians did not live the life. They've finally given up on the pretense. Should not these be the best of times, ladies and gentlemen? The Christian faith in America should be breaking records. Why? Because we have better resources. We have Christian schools, Christian universities, Christian camps, Christian cruises, Christian publishing, Christian conferences, Christian dating websites, and Christian amusement parks. We got everything Christian. We have world-class buildings. We have better church campuses featuring better seating and lighting, better parking, better coffee. Man, some even have sports fields and bowling alleys and water slides and pools. We have corporate-level leadership. Huge denominations function as multinational corporations, mega-churches pastored by mega-pastors with mega-sized staffs are now in every major city in America. We have better communications. Technology has exploded. Every church has a website, a Twitter account, an Instagram, a constant contact, along with sermons available via podcast and online. We own Christian radio networks, television networks, individual stations. We have professionally produced television ministries, some with superstar pastors. We even now, thanks to some preachers out in LA, have a reality TV show on preachers. The list is endless. The American church has never had more resources. These should be the best of times. These should be the days in which Christians and churches experience explosive growth and unparalleled, unparalleled difference. But go back with me to Revelation chapter 3 and begin reading with me at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold 
or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you would ask me for an apt description of the average evangelical church in America, I would turn to these verses, unfortunately. We don't have much information about the Laodicean church, especially its membership, but here's what we know. Laodicea was a banking and an exchange center, a very wealthy place, a very prosperous place. It was a clothing center. It was a fashion center. It was up to date in the latest styles and fashion. And there was also a medical center there that had devised a kind of powder that when they, they would use it, it would cure many different kinds of eye ailments. It was, it was formed into an eye salve, and they would place it upon the eyes of people who had diseases, and it would cure those diseases. Very prosperous, very fashionable, great medical services. These, this was the kind of place that the Lord Jesus Christ writes a letter to his believers, those who make up the local church in Laodicea. Notice, if you will, with me for just a moment that Jesus begins with a description about himself. Jesus says in verse 14 that he is the amen or the amen. What that word means there is, is so be it or truly, this is true. When you say amen, you are agreeing with what is being said. You're saying this is so. The Lord Jesus takes the title of the amen upon himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 19 says, For the Son of God. Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This means not only does Jesus teach the truth, and not only does he declare the truth, and not only does he explain the truth, but Jesus in and of himself is the truth. Now that simply means that everything else is tested then by the standard of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is truth. 
Then he says this about himself, that he is the faithful and the true witness, and he means that when he came into this world, he did not dilute, nor did he distort the truth. Then he says, he is the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the origin in creation. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That's Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, you can trace the footprints and the fingerprints of Jesus in all of this creation. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I want to call your attention then to three things in the scripture this morning. Three things we find in Revelation chapter 3. Having said that and understanding that Jesus is not talking just only about the truth. He's not declaring, just only declaring or expounding on the truth. Jesus is truth. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the truth. Now notice this, if you will. Three things. First of all, the Lord Jesus complains concerning their spiritual indifference. There's, first of all, the complaint of Jesus. Look at verse 15 and 16. This is what it says and what he says about their, the spiritual condition of this church. He's talking about their spiritual temperature. This is amazing. Anytime I use that word temperature, I think of my mother-in-law because she is from the South and she doesn't say it the way that I say it. I say temperature, she says temperature. <laughs> and I always think of June saying to me, when we go to her house, she's 87, okay? She's not old. Y'all quit looking at me like that. She really isn't. She's one of the youngest people I know. She really, she thinks young. She looks young. She acts young. But her body sometimes doesn't register the right temperature. And, and we stay in the back portion of the house, but the, the thermostat is up close to her room. And so when we go to bed, I'll say, Jennifer, it's hot in this house. She says, I know, welcome to my mom's. I said, I know, but we've got we've to call an air conditioning man and we've got to put the real, the real box back here by our room and make that one a phony box. That's deceptive, isn't it? I mean, she'll set it on 80. And in the back, it's 87 or 86. You know, and so I'll go up and I'll, I, I, you know, I, I'm hot natured anyway. I'll, I'll set it down and she'll say, oh, Alan. And, it, and she's Southern, so I'm Alan, Alan. She'll say, Alan, bless your heart. That, that means you're about ready to get told. <laughs> you messed with the, 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 the temperature. Yes, June, I'm sweating. 
I've got a pair of shorts on. I can't hardly sleep at night. That fan above me is not where I got to have some air conditioning. Oh, it was so cold in this house last night. Cold wasn't even an apt description of any place in that house. Jesus is saying this. He says, I want to talk to you about your spiritual temperature. This is amazing, ladies and gentlemen. Here is a church that names the name of Jesus. And yet there is no emotion. There is no excitement. There is no enthusiasm about this congregation whatsoever. There was a little boy who came home, quoted the verse that he had learned in Sunday school, and the verse was, many are called and a few are chosen. He got it all mixed up, and he said, many are cold and a few frozen. <laughs> Listen, some of us have got enough religion to make us miserable. God deliver us from being lukewarm about Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church, Bradenton, listen to me. If we love Jesus, there's got to be some emotion here. If we love Jesus, there's got to be some excitement here. If we love Jesus, there's got to be some enthusiasm about what we are doing. The Laodicean church believes in the cross, but they're not moved by the cross. They believe in the fact of sin, but they're not disturbed that people are living in sin. This morning, I was driving in, got on Manatee Avenue, and I, I'm getting pretty good at this drive. I could almost do it blindfolded. Today, I'll drive it twice. Today, I'll drive this morning, and I'll go back home and have lunch with my bride, and then I'm coming back over because our transition team meets tonight, and, and I'm excited about meeting with them and, and what they're going to begin in process and you together with them and be praying for them. But as I pull down Manatee Avenue, I just, folks, if you don't see it, you're blind. There are people everywhere in this community who are hopeless. Who are crying out for somebody to love them. Somebody to reach out to them and say, listen, I don't know what happened to you. I, I want to listen to you, but, but listen, there's hope in Christ. Every time I, I drive into this parking lot, every time I, I, God begins to, to stir me afresh and anew, God deliver me from being lukewarm about this community. The Laodicean church believes in the cross, and yet they're not moved by that cross. Why is this lukewarm condition so serious? Because this is the kind of church that burdens the heart of a pastor more than any other. This is the kind of church that is hardest to move for the Lord Jesus Christ. This Laodicean church, it is a sickening condition. The word there, the Greek word there used that we, we get this word emetic from. It is an emetic, it's something that empties the stomach. You ever had your stomach emptied? Whew. Jesus is saying, you make me sick at my stomach. I'm going to throw you up and spit you out. Church, Jesus is coming to us today with a challenge. He is saying either be one or the other. Don't be half-hearted. Don't have a lukewarm commitment. He is disturbed then about their spiritual indifference. And then he's disturbed about their spiritual ignorance. 
Look at what it says in verse 17. It said that they were rich and increased with goods and they had need of nothing. Sound familiar? This is one of the most astonishing statements in the entire Bible. Lukewarm, indifferent, unconcerned about the Lord, Jesus Christ, and they said, we don't need anything. Leave us alone. That is an incredible situation. It is bad when a church needs a revival, but it's even worse to need a revival and not know you need a revival. But the second thing is this. Not only is the complaint of Jesus, but now look, if you will, because Jesus goes on to give them counsel. Verse 18, he wants them to restore spiritual realities. Jesus says there is to be a restoration of spiritual values, spiritual virtue, a return to spiritual wisdom and spiritual vision, spiritual restoration. Verse 19, he counsels spiritual repentance. He rebukes, but he loves them. He can rebuke many different ways. Often it's through the preaching of God's word or a, a circumstance that God uses to rebuke us. But then notice what he says. And then he chastens. There is a difference between rebuke and chasten. Rebuke is a warning. Chastening is an action. Jesus is saying, I'm going to whip you. I know we don't like to talk about that these days. My, my dad, I grew up in an old-fashioned Southern Baptist pastor's home that had a razor strap hanging in his bathroom. That razor strap was not to be used to strap a razor. It was to be used to strap my behind. And my father would always say before he would spank me with that razor strap, I know what some of you are thinking, he was abused as a child. I was never abused. I deserved every one of those spankings. I deserved many more. If you'd have seen some of the things I did as a preacher's kid, the baptistry, me and one of the deacon's kids uh, got into the baptistry one day because we thought it'd be a great swimming pool and it was at our disposal. My dad wore me out. But he would always say before he'd spank me, this is, listen, son, I'm doing this because I love you. I'd always want to say, won't you turn around and let me love on you a little bit, buddy? <laughs> and he'd always say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. That's a lie. <laughs> but I know now, having been a father and having to discipline children, it wasn't a lie. You can rebuke. But now notice what he says. I also chasten. Jesus said this, you had better repent. Be zealous and repent. Zealous means to come to a boil. Get on fire for Jesus. Come to a boil and repent. But finally, ladies and gentlemen, there is the call of Jesus. The Greeks had three meals. They had breakfast meal, which was fairly substantial. And then they had a noon meal, which was like a catch meal. And then they had a supper meal, and that meal was always at the end of the day after the activity was over. It was a, a long, sumptuous meal. It was my favorite kind of meal. A great time of fellowship, conversation, intimacy. First Baptist Church, get this picture. If you open the door, Jesus said, I'll come in and I'll eat this meal with you, the main meal. I'll be close and intimate with you. I'll walk with you, and I'll love you, and we'll walk together. We'll love one another and enjoy all the way to the throne of God. Now, why is it that today we see such a decline then 
in Christianity. Why is it that the Huffington Post wrote this, wrote this line, why nobody wants to go to church anymore? What, what's gone wrong? In South Africa, there is a similar dynamic. A good friend of mine by the name of John Smith, he's not a Mormon, by the way, he, uh, he and I went to seminary. He's, he's probably 15 years older than I am. John began to go to Cape Town, South Africa, and began to preach in the Dutch Reformed churches. The Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa is an old established church in the country, and while many of them are large, well-attended, you can characterize them pretty much in, in this manner. They are segregated. They are lifeless. They are uptight. They are condemning. They are all white. They're old-fashioned. They're tradition-driven churches. John went to Cape Town. He went to Johannesburg. In Johannesburg, he was invited to preach at another Dutch Reformed church. Listen to what he saw in that church. He said, we walked in and saw thousands of people joyfully worshiping together. The atmosphere was absolutely electric. We were shocked to see the crowd was so diverse. Whites, blacks, teenagers, students, adults, rich and poor. We're all standing side by side singing. He said, I could not believe what I saw. I asked the senior pastor, how long have you been pastor of this church? He replied, 10 years. Was it this way when you got here? To which he replied, Oh, no, it was like every other Dutch Reformed church in South Africa. The obvious question, what happened? He said the change took place with just one conversation. He walked into his first church leadership team meeting, went to the head of the table where a chair was reserved for him, and he turned to the leaders and said, I'm not sitting in that chair no one will ever sit in that chair again. That chair belongs to Jesus. It's supposed to be his church. He said to the team, from what I can analyze thus far, this church has been running without him, and that's going to stop as of now. Since it's his church, why don't we give it back to him? And since it's his church, from now on, we will only ask one question. What? does Jesus want us to do? What does Jesus want us to do? He went on to add that our decisions will no longer be determined by South African culture or our own tradition or even our own preferences. Beginning this moment, we are recommitting our lives and our church to Jesus, and from now on, we will only do what Jesus wants us to do. Now think about this. 200 years of cultural conditioning and church history had been thrown out of the window, gone in one leadership meeting. Then that senior pastor said, we just gave the church back to Jesus. And Jesus swept his arms open wide across this still worshiping congregation and said, this is just what Jesus wanted to do. Look at it. My pastor friend, John Smith, never recovered from that experience. He stated that walking away from that South African church and the followers of Christ that made up the constituency of that church, he was more convinced than ever before that that the greatest need of any Christian is to rediscover the power unleashed by reconnecting with and actually following Jesus. 
He said, I wondered what would happen if the church where I pastored, if we gave our church back to the one who actually with his own blood bought and paid for it, what would happen? First Baptist Church at Bradenton, what would happen if we intentionally started asking the question, what does Jesus want us to do? I want you right now to turn to your neighbor and say, what does Jesus want us to do? On the screen, you recognize that door? It's that door right over there. Can you hear that? John, was that somebody at the door? Somebody grab that door back there. Open that door. Somebody grab that door over there and open that door over there and open that door and open that door. And somebody hurry quick. Open the doors. Open them. Golly, you guys are slow. Come on. Thank you. What would happen? What would happen? If Jesus were standing on the outside of this church, would we just sit comfortably here? Or would we run to the door and say, Jesus, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Now, I probably should have prepared the security team because now everybody's wondering what is going on. But here's what's happening. And thank goodness for that security team. Here's what's happening. Jesus is saying, First Baptist Bradenton, I want that kind of church in Bradenton. Can you imagine this building being filled with every ethnicity? White, black, brown. I don't care. About that time, then my mic goes dead. <laughs> every ethnicity. Rich and poor. Doug and the worship team standing here leading us in the praise of God's people. People coming in off the streets hearing that this is a church where all are welcome and where Jesus is. Wouldn't it be wonderful that we didn't have to invite anybody because of the, the noise that was abroad in this community? If you go to that church, those folks are going to love you not because you're rich, but because you are somebody that Jesus died for. It can happen. Ladies and gentlemen, it can happen. It can happen just like that too. But we have to be willing to say, Lord, we're sorry. We've not had the main thing, the main thing for a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not about your comfort. It's never been about your comfort. It's not about 
where you sit. And, 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 and let me tell you something. If you sit in a, a seat every Sunday, that's great. But what if you had to give up your seat because there were too many visitors? Wouldn't that be a great problem? It's not about your church. This is Jesus' church. You are Jesus'. It's not this building. This is just a worship center. You are the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What does Jesus, First Baptist Church, what does he want us to do? I want you to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes, and here's the invitation. Here's the invitation, and I'm going to ask you if you will. Because